So Luke 22, starting at verse 39. And he came out and went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be wil- willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down the ground to the ground. And when he arose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them, and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? So far this morning. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we continue to reflect upon the great sufferings of our Lord and the um, the majesty of the cross. I pray that you would um, humble us, that we would look with new wonder and admiration at our great Savior. Oh God, we thank you for what you have done and salvation accomplished, salvation applied to the heart of sinners. And Lord, we thank you that our King is coming back to uh, take us to be with him forever, one day in glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text this morning is the last verse I read. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Now if we think about, first of all, the first phrase there where it says, Jesus said unto him, Judas, Judas. The disciples must have been totally fine when they saw Judas showing up, right? If you think about it, Judas was one of them. He was, uh, he was part of the twelve, but what they must not have understood is why is there a whole crowd coming with Judas? What's, what's going on? So the disciples would not have known, but Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Jesus saw right through this Judas. Judas had lived a double life. We know that. Uh, John 12 says this of Judas. It says he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. You see, Judas had stolen the gift money that people had given for the poor And uh, he wasn't satisfied just with gift money. Now he was interested in blood money. And that's as far as his heart would take him to that depth. And even when Jesus had earlier said, he says, even one of you which eateth with me shall betray me, he had said at the Passover. The Bible says that one by one, which would include Judas, they began to say, is it I, Lord? And so Judas lied. He deceived. You know, you think about that. We cannot deceive our Lord Jesus. You can deceive the disciples of Jesus, but you cannot deceive Jesus Christ. And perhaps you've been a deceiver for years. You're a church going, well, it's showmanship. Perhaps you fool your parents. You're sitting here this morning. You've, de- you've fooled and deceived your friends. But know this. Jesus looks through it all. He is not deceived by showmanship, by people who show up in church neat and tidy. Jesus knows the heart. He knows the Judas. He knows the Peter. He knows the John. He knows each one. He's not fooled. And then 
You just think about what wonder then that Jesus, the all-knowing Jesus, instead of crushing his betrayer, he allows himself to be crushed at the hands of liars and deceivers, people like you, people like me. That's the amazing thing. Notice how Jesus approaches him, his betrayer, the one he knows. He says, Judas. He addresses him by his personal name. There's kind of an eerie sovereignty in that very personal address, isn't there? Judas. In the Matthew account, it says, Friend, wherefore art thou come? In calling him so personally, Jesus, in essence, is saying, Friend, my apostle, my my sent one, the one I know so well, the one that was so close with me, friend. This is the same Jesus who had stooped to wash the feet of Judas, the betrayer. And so in Psalm 41, verse 9, Jesus fulfilling prophecy, he says this, Yea, in Psalm 41, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. And so in this very personal Judas, the words must have cut deep into Judas's heart. But it didn't stop him, did it? Judas continued on with the betrayal. So dark was this man's heart that he would betray the one who knew no sin. And to think for the price of a common slave, 30 pieces of silver. John warned Judas earlier in his high priestly prayer, praying to the Father, Jesus would call Judas the son of perdition. You know what perdition means? The son of destruction. The son of the destruction which consists of the eternal miseries of hell. That is what Jesus Jesus calls Judas. And again, just think about that. Jesus, the all-knowing, then would turn himself willingly. He would surrender himself to this despicable greed. Doesn't that show the depth of of the love that Jesus had for his father, the mission to be obedient unto death. Because in the high priestly prayer, he's praying to the father, I have fulfilled what you have called me to do. I've lost none, save the son of perdition. And he would go on. The lamb of God was about to be slain for sinners, not in general, but for sinners in particular. And you think about this, if the name Judas epitomizes The name of a son of perdition. How much richer is Christ's knowledge of the names of the sons of salvation. Those he would bear as the high priest into the offering. In fact, turn with me please to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. Here we see the continual warfare between two seeds. The seed of the serpent versus the seed of Christ. And the cosmic clash that is between these two seeds. But in verses 7 to 8, you'll notice that this clash, this collision, and the particularness of it all centers around the death of Christ. It says this, And it was given unto them to make war with the saints, the seed of the 
Christ and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. This is referring to the beast. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written. Look at that. Whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So, so the, the author here is drawing back to eternity. He's speaking about the lamb slain, and he's speaking about the names of those who are written in the book of life and those whose names are not written in the book of life. Notice the particular nature, the peculiarity of that death of our Lord Jesus Christ. From eternity, Christ's death was for those he has named before they were born. And therefore, dying for his chosen ones, not one sin that was laid on our Lord Jesus Christ was therefore a shock to our Savior. He knowingly bore every offense, every infraction of the law. And that is why Jesus would earlier in Matthew say this to his disciples. He says, rejoice. We rejoice in this cross because he says, your names are written in heaven. Rejoice, Christian, because he knows us by name. He called us from eternity. You might be thinking, why me? Why me? What an incredible, undeserved mercy is ours, isn't it? Why me? What mercy we see. If we go on in our text, Judas, notice the next words. It's one in the Greek, betrayest thou, betrayest thou. At first glance, we may wonder why Judas even needed to betray Jesus, right? After all, wasn't Jesus openly teaching in the temple every day? Well, we know why he had to betray, why it had to go this way, why it had to be dark, why it had to be in the blackness of the night. The Bible tells us that in Luke 22:2, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. They were afraid of what the crowds might do. They were looking for something. And Judas knows the problem, doesn't he? He knows that it had to be a way that the people weren't there. And so it says in Luke 22, 6, that he agreed to find that way to betray him unto them. And it says, particularly in the text, in the absence of the multitude, away from the crowds. And so Judas now, by Jesus, is confronted in the very act, using the particular second person personal pronoun betrayest thou singular he's not talking at this moment to the crowds straight to Judas he's talking are you Judas going to betray me the one who walked with me the one who saw my miracles the one who knows my innocence are you going to betray me what had happened to this Judas what drove this man The Bible tells us what drove this man, that before he makes the most treacherous deal in all of history, the Bible says, Satan entered into Judas. Human rebellion, don't forget, was because of the treachery of the devil. And through Judas, we see the old serpent at work again, his trickery, right? Betrayal is an act of trickery and deception again happening I think it's striking isn't it that it was the deception of the devil that would cause death 
to come on the sons, on Adam and his sons. And now one of the fallen sons of Adam with deception would cause the death of the second Adam. This is no ordinary lie. This betrayal unleashes If you look at the text in verse 33, he says, But this is your hour and the power of darkness. It's interesting. Jesus, Judas, we know this from the Bible, was acting according to his father, the devil. Jesus says to the Pharisees, You are of your father, the devil, the prince of darkness. But notice the shift, because in verse 48, where we're looking, betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss. In verse 53, he moves from the first person singular, or second person singular, to the second person plural. But this is your hour, y'all. This is all of you, the dark hour that y'all want. Because in the end, it wasn't just Judas that wanted Jesus dead, was it? It was the rulers who hated him. It was the crowds who would call, crucify him, crucify him. There was Pilate. There was Herod. There were the soldiers who willingly obeyed. Oh, we're just following orders. But they mocked him. They plotted on him that crown of thorns and they beat him. You know why? Because sin infects everyone. That's why. This is your, y'all, our They all saw the holiness of Christ. They all saw his work openly in the temple. And they hated it. They hated it. What motivates that kind of wretched hatred to betray the son of glory? The Bible tells us, John 3, 19, Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, when the floodlight of the Holy Son of God walking this earth shines. You know what it does? It exposes sin. It sees it. It finds it. And you see the blackness of the human heart. And sinful man will only seek one solution when the light shines on a dark heart. Not repentance. It seeks to extinguish the light, to block it, to kill the sinless Lamb of God. That's what men's heart wants. And that is why Peter, later in Acts, will say to the crowds on Pentecost, he will say, but ye, again plural, but ye denied the Holy One. Look at the words. The Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the prince or the author of life. Have you seen yourself in the murder of Jesus? Have you implicated yourself in the scandal of justice? We, we, you and me would take a murderer over the Holy One. That is what sinners want. And Judas demonstrates For all of us, the wickedness of fallen mankind, doesn't he? Again, it just masterfully portrays, on one hand, the heart of man, and on the other hand, the heart and the love of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul marvels 
at this tension, this opposite, this stark contrast. He will say this in Romans 5, that God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And then he reflects again, he says this, for if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. At that cross, the son of God was fully veiled. His glory was fully covered in the blood, in the agony, in the darkness of the the hour when darkness came over the whole world. And he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But it's amazing when you think of that cross, because when we look at the cross on that side, we see darkness. But when we look at the same cross through the eyes of faith, as the Spirit enlightens our eyes to look at the same cross, we see as believers unbelievable beauty. Have you seen that? In the cross, beauty. Can you behold such beauty that the sinless Lamb of God is freely giving Himself for me, for you, believer, His enemy? Can you confess it? Can you confess these words? There is a radiance of the Holy Son fully atoning for my sins. How the justice of God was satisfied in Christ for me. What mercy freely given for me. Have you seen the beauty in the contrast? Notice Jesus' words here, betrayest thou, look at his words, the son of man, the son of man. He doesn't say, Judas, betrayest thou me with a kiss. He says, betrayest thou the son of man. Son of man is how Jesus would often refer to himself, actually most often referred to himself as the son of man. The title before didn't seem to bother anyone throughout his ministry. Not once do we have an account of them picking up stones when he said the son of man. In fact, twice we actually get the question, who is the son of man? And once it was Jesus himself who would ask his disciples, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And we get all kinds of answers from the disciples. You might remember Matthew 16, right? Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some Elias and others Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. And then Jesus penetratingly asks them, Whom say ye that I am? He's asking all of them, right? Ye. But there's one guy who answers. It's Peter. Brash Peter. He gives the answer. He says, Thou art the Christ, the Mashiach, the anointed one. The son of the living God. Peter gave the right answer. And Jesus recognizes that right answer. Doesn't he? Because he says. Blessed art thou Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee. But the father which is in heaven. You see that understanding of son of man. Is a revelation from on high from the father. This is who the Son of Man is. He is no ordinary man. He's not just a son of Adam. And Peter, by God's revelation, saw that. Who was there? Judas. 
Judas heard that. Undoubtedly, there's no way he understood the depth of that confession. But he knew, by Jesus' affirmation of it, who he was betraying. The other time when the question gets asked, it isn't Jesus who asks. It's in John 12. Now it's the crowds. John 12, 32 to 34. And Jesus says this. He says, and if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And John, writing this, explicitly links this to a public death by crucifixion, right? If I be lifted up, we think of a cross. This he said, signifying what death he should die. And the people answer him. And they ask the question. We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. You've got to think this through. The crowds are asking. They're saying, the Christ abideth forever. And thou sayest, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so they ask the obvious question. Who is this Son of Man? Who are you? What kind of a Son of Man are you? In other words, the Christ, the Anointed One, would be forever. He couldn't die in their conception. doesn't make sense. So who is this son of man? And Jesus' answer is somewhat mysterious because he says, yet a little while the light is with you. While ye have the light, believe in the light. Very enigmatic answer. Later on, he gets clearer. He says, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. He's saying he's come from somewhere else as the light. Judas heard that answer. Judas, again, was there, but he didn't see the light. He rejected it, and Jesus specifically linked the answer to faith. Who believeth on me? Judas wanted none of it. He rejected him. You see, the word son of man is a messianic term. It is used 90 times in the Gospels. And it's all rooted in the Old Testament. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, when it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like unto the son of man came with the clouds to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him, Note the link. Son of man, the ancient of days, and what is given? Dominion and glory and a kingdom. And that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Daniel explicitly links the glorious kingdom of the Christ, the Messiah, with the Son of Man. But because the Jews had no notion of a suffering Messiah, when Jesus says Son of Man over 90 times, they didn't connect it to the Messiah. Jesus, throughout his ministry, using that term, filled it up prophetically, with ideas of humiliation, suffering, and then exaltation. And they missed all the breadcrumbs. Judas missed the breadcrumbs. 
Have you seen the breadcrumbs? When you read those terms throughout the Gospels, do you see the building depth of the suffering and then exaltation of Christ? Humiliation, suffering, then exaltation in this Son of Man. So finally, in the hour of darkness, Jesus makes it crystal clear that he is the Son of Man, that is the Christ. In fact, it is seen explicitly in Luke 22. Turn with me, please, to Luke 22, verse at the end of this chapter, actually. Uh, verse 66. He links it all together. And as soon as it was day, the elders and the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Remember, that's the term Messiah, which means anointed one. Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. He is explicitly linking it with Daniel here. Then said they all, and they, these guys were the, these are the, the, the scribes. These guys knew their scriptures. They don't miss it. Because they say it. Art thou then the Son of of God, exactly, the Son of God. They see the link. It's unmistakable. And he said unto them, ye say that I am. And now they know. There's no question left. And they said, what need we any further witnesses? For we ourselves have heard out of his own mouth. The link has been unmistakably make, made. This Son of Man is the Son of God of Daniel 7. And notice he says, on the right hand of the majesty on I, that links Psalm 110, where the Lord says unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord there, the Messiah. He links all of the Old Testament understanding of the suffering and glorious Messiah to himself. As we meditate on that death of this Son of Man today, we must remember he is no ordinary Christ. There were many messiahs before, claims to being the anointed of God. Only this one can be called the Son of God. And so Judas did not merely betray a good man, a wise man, a particular man, a humble man. Judas betrayed the God-man. Which king would allow such humiliation of himself? Which monarch would stoop to such depths? What words can describe the greatness of the one who was about to betray, be betrayed by a kiss from one of his own? If our Savior stooped to such depths for us, we may well ask, what will he not do for his own? That's what the Bible says in Romans 8. If he spared not his own son, what more shall he not freely give us in all things? Jesus was not powerless when he was crucified. It was not because he couldn't stop it. Therefore, he was crucified. It is not as though he couldn't call 12 legions of angels and destroy the Romans and the Jews. And plunge you and me forever into eternal hell justly. He could have done that. And justice still would be served. He could have done that. 
What drove Jesus to the cross was simply this, his voluntary submission to his heavenly Father. And we saw it earlier on, not my will, but thine be done. This cross was a chosen cross. It was the Son being obedient to death, even death of the cross. If you thought about that, Jesus Christ was not made poor by force. It was not because of Judas that he ultimately was counted a criminal. He was not suffer. He did not suffer. There was no bribes that put him in this place. He did not suffer because of a bribe. But his obedience was anchored in his love for the Father. You know, I thought about that when I was thinking of this text. Many, many others have suffered torture. The cross would be at eye level. The people would be nailed to it. And the birds would start pecking at it. The dogs start gnawing at the feet. The people would walk by it and see the blood. They would see the gore. They would hear the moans as people were trying to grasp their, for, for one breath. This was the most barbarous instrument of torture. It was perfected from the Assyrians now taken over by the Romans. But the physical agony of our Jesus pales in comparison to the spiritual wrath that the Father poured on this Son of God, the only Son of God. On that cross, the Father unleashed the fullness of His wrath on sinners, on His own Son. Oh, think of the knowledge of our Son then to go to this cross. Marvel that the Son knowingly would take every sin upon Him. When we sin, we don't even get the depth of what we have done. But Jesus does understand what has happened. The sins you and I have committed this week, he knows exactly the laws we have trespassed. You know, think about that. We may warn friends and neighbors and co-workers. We may warn our children about the wrath they are accumulating because of their sins. Have you done that? Have you warned a friend? Maybe this past week you have. We might even meditate on our own wickedness and what it deserves. But the depth of what we just said, if you do this, you're accumulating wrath. We are sinners. The depth of that. We don't even understand that. The depth of what justice demands will never be truly known by mortals like ourselves. Even the greatest theologians cannot fathom the extent of the curse of law-breaking. So do you think we can honestly fathom the majesty of the holy God whom we have offended? But our Christ was not ignorant of what lay before him. Our Christ knew the purity of God's holiness He knew the just demands of the law. He knew what the scriptures meant when it said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew what Isaiah meant when it says, He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. He knew what was before him. So in the garden, his pure and holy human nature did not shrink from death as death. It shrank from death as becoming a curse for the sin of his people. That is why he prayed for the cup to be removed. Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, puts it so beautifully when he says this, the desire that the cup might pass from him 
was the struggle, his human nature, not an unwillingness in his person or a repenting of the undertaking of his office. It was the natural motion evidencing the truth of his humanity, the greatness of what he was to suffer. It was a struggle of his human nature. And so finally, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss. We must reflect upon that kiss of betrayal because in the Greek, it is front-loaded in the verse. It says literally, Judas, with a kiss dost thou betray the Son of Man. The kiss, the sign of friendship, the sign of respect, the sign of homage was a kiss of treachery. As betrayal by nature is pretended loyalty. It is pretended love. Judas pretended to give that sign of affection only to stab the Lord, as it were, in the back. I'm so thankful that in our Lord's death, in his suffering, there is no pretense. There is no pretended affection in the Lord Jesus. There's no pretended loyalty to the Father. He never betrayed his loyalty to the Father, did he? I think then we can be confident, can't we, that if the Son was faithful to his Father to the point of betrayal and death, then surely our Savior will be faithful and loyal to his promise that he is ever living to intercede for us. His high priestly work for us will never be betrayed. It will never diminish. It will always be constant. Do you believe that? Do you hold on to that? When you suffer and when you struggle with sins and trials and, and, and breaking the law, remember our high priest is bearing our sins in his wounds to the Father. He has bled and died for them. And he never betrays that. You ever thought about this? These are the last words that Judas ever heard from the Lord Jesus Christ. They must have rung in his ears when he returned the blood money and said, I have betrayed innocent blood. They must have beat his conscience when he took the rope and hung himself on a tree. And they will be the words that will echo in his mind to eternity. And Jesus says this, he says, the son of man, same words again we saw, indeed goeth as it is written of him. Jesus is fulfilling scripture. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. What words are going to ring in your minds today? What truths are going to echo in the chamber of your heart today? You see... You ever looked at this? This is a question. Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? The question is before us, and a question demands answers. We are the ones that nailed Jesus in our sin to the tree. Our sins brought him there, and in obedience to the Father, he went and died for us. What will you do with Jesus? Judas heard the question. And went forward with the act of treachery. 
Today you are being called by the preaching of the gospel to repent of your sins and to turn to Jesus. Will you continue in your waywardness? Will you continue in your hatred of God, unbeliever? Or will you turn to him in faith? Jesus Christ, the Bible says, became one with our nature. But he did not become with one with us in our sin until the Father laid our sins on him. Not once did he transgress the holy law of God, yet on that cross, God the Father judicially imputed or reckoned or accounted the sinner's guilt to him. And then, because the sin was now laid on him, in the sight of the law of God, he had to pay the debt. That great act of imputation is our great act of deliverance. My sins, our sins, accounted to him, and therefore he had to die and bear the weight of God's justice. And he did. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the full. And in this substitution of my sins laid on him, the Bible also says that his righteousness by faith is accounted to me, to the believer, to any one of us who trusts him. And by faith we are counted in his death and accounted in his life. The price has been fully paid and satisfied. The curse of the law for eternity has been broken for the believer. And Christians, we are free. We are at liberty in Jesus Christ. And so when the venom of sin stings against you this week, or in this coming week, or in the years and months to come, as long as God will give you breath, when the venom stings, and when the thunder of the law claps in your mind and sounds judgment, believer, remember, our hope rests securely, not on the act of Judas, but on the act of Christ, willingly giving himself for sinners. The Bible says this, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. This is no ordinary love. This is God's love to redeem sinners. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ who died for sinners, betrayed by a friend, a disciple. Lord, we thank you that in that hour of darkness, Christ came out the victor. That, Lord, nothing caught the Son of Man off guard, but that he willingly gave himself an offering for sinners. O oh Lord, we rejoice in that cross, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name.